great day, and um, just um, it, it's important for everybody um, just step up in faith and uh, passion, and when we worship, when we pray, when we do what we do, we'll back up a little bit here. Um, it really matters that you engage, that you all all do. It makes such a difference, and uh, we are a body. <clears throat> and I, and I want to just put out a call to every one of you with the gifts and the callings and the things that are on your life. It's essential that you stir up your gift. It will not only help you, it will, it will affect everybody around you. And sometimes we're lacking... Still not back far enough. How's that? I'll get there. Where did I put my water at? Did I lay it? Here it is. Every gift matters. And um, so sometimes necessity pushes us into stepping out. And uh, But how nice it would be if we're more willing to flow in, in doing our part. So um, I want to move into this as quickly as I can. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through uh, 14 first. We'll look at this. Romans 14, verses 10. I hope I said that right. Okay. This is kind of neat, a little different for me to speak on this subject, but it's following with what I've been getting out of this book, Imagine Heaven. And uh, I'm going to look today at um, um, having a life review. And um, we find that in Scripture, we all have a life review coming. And beginning in verse 10 of Romans 14, why would you judge your brother or sister because of their diet, despising them for what they eat or don't eat? And this was a discussion earlier in the scripture about that. For we each will have our turn to stand before God's judgment seat, just as it is written, as surely as I am the living God, I tell you, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess the truth and glorify me. Therefore, each one must answer for himself and give a personal account of his own life before God. Oh boy. 2 Corinthians, another passage on the same subject, chapter 5. Oh boy, a life review. It's coming. <clears throat> Verses 8 through 10. Beginning in um, verse 8, we live with a joyful confidence, yet at the same time, we take delight in the thought of leaving our bodies behind to be at home with the Lord. So whether we live or die, we make it our life's passion to live our lives pleasing to him. For one day we will all be openly revealed before Christ 
on his throne so that each of us will be duly recompensed for our actions done in life, whether good or worthless. The judgment seat of Christ and that coming can be terrifying for, you know, we're like, we're always like ragging on the unbelievers. They need to get their act together. But uh, if you're a believer, uh, sometimes you have more premonition, like you're aware of your shortcomings, your failures, the decisions that you've made and the repercussions of those decisions. And uh, as you get older, there's this, oh God. Like, wow, you know, as you see more, you know more, you're getting a little more humble about the whole thing, not as haughty, and it's like, wow. I'm still falling short (laughs) of the glory of God, you know, that thing. Well, there's a whole chapter on having a life review in this book, Imagine Heaven. And I want to share with you, because this will bring comfort, it'll also bring conviction. It reveals more of the reality of the love of God for you. And consistent with all these NDEs, near-death experiences, they're mostly dead, not completely dead, not eternally dead, like funny funny thing, but it is what they experience. They don't go quite to that place of forever and they end up being sent back. That's how we have the testimonies. We need the truth, a foundation. That's predominantly scripture. We have a foundation. We do a teaching on things. We do teachings on heal. We teach on healing. We teach on worship. We teach on, on different things. But there's also necessity a uh, a testimony, a real life experience or story that fits that in order for it to become fully alive. Like we can have the doctrine of healing, we can build it really high and big and perfect. But what do we need to connect with that teaching? It, it's still just a teaching until what happens. Until we hear a testimony of someone being healed. And you can be full of believing, but there's something the testimony does. When you hear that, it energizes you and empowers you. And so I've had that experience with reading more of these experiences, opening myself up to just... I. I'll just say in kind of a general thing, I've resisted a lot of this stuff. So that being said, I I really opened myself up as I read this book because it was so well-written and so doctrinally like the scripture and then the experience. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is, it really made me come alive in a lot of areas. I've really been blessed by it. And so we have that, and we have to deal with this subject of hell. We never talk about hell. Very seldom do I preach about it or talk about it, but it's real. Some people theologically work hard at getting rid of it. 
but you can't. Uh, you can, but you may have a different attitude after you've experienced it, yeah? So, as is true with so many things, you know, like how you will do in a marriage. I'll be a great husband or I'll be a great wife, and then the reality comes, and you go, ooh, this is a little harder than I thought. Ouch, ouch, you know. God, why will you do this? Well, I needed to change you. <laughs> I need you to become something beyond what you were. Marriage definitely does that, doesn't it? Life experience does that. Leadership does that. You're all full of knowing how you're going to do something and how you're going to lead till you become a leader. And you go, Ooh, uh-oh, I have real, real understanding now. It's not that simple. <laughs> there are elements, there are things, there are pitfalls. There are things you have to overcome. And to learn how to, to, to uh, <clears throat> you have to learn how to serve. We're going to focus around a man, his name is Howard Storm. And um, I'm going to take the time to do this. He, his experience, when he had a near-death experience, initially wasn't a good experience. When people die and they experience that many of the in the stories have did not have to experience that. He did. He was so close that he can hardly talk about it. So that it sobers you up. You're like, we need to stop talking about these things. We need to talk about them, but not with a flim, flippant, casual way that we do when you realize the reality reality of this it's sobering and then in this but in this and what makes the difference is that these people find this love from Jesus that is almost indescribable and his rescuing power Listen to this story. Howard was a professor of art at Northern Kentucky University. So these aren't just, you know, normal people that live on Bethesda Road. You know, they're like, they've got degrees. They're educated. They, you know, they've accomplished things. <clears throat> but it also carries a lot of weight when they have these experiences and they come back around and go, whoa. Do I have a story? <laughs> they're changed. They're transformed. He was taking students on a tour of Paris Museum. He was a professor, of course, when he had a stomach ulcer that perforated his duodenum. Anyways, deadly. You've got about five hours to get that fixed or you're in trouble. He went to a doctor, waited, waited. They couldn't see him. Said, you'll have to come. Sorry, the doctor left. Like, oh, God, you'll have to come back tomorrow. So he went home, and he died. Said goodbye to his wife. She begins to weep uncontrollably, as you can imagine. He closed his eyes, and he passed away. He expected oblivion, but instead he found himself standing up beside the bed. He opened his eyes. I felt more alive than I ever felt in my entire life. Why do I feel so good? I just felt the worst I had ever felt in my entire life, and then I couldn't breathe, and now I'm like Superman. 
My eyesight, my hearing, my taste, my peripheral vision has greatly expanded and my depth of field is without any limitation. I'm an artist and I'm really aware of the visual thing. So I tried to speak to my wife who was, was on the other side of the bed with her head on her hands, <clears throat> bent over and I get no reaction from her. So I start to yell and scream at her because she's not responding to me. I'm yelling and cussing and swearing at her and nothing. So I turn to the Monsoor Florin, the the patient in the adjacent, adjacent hospital bed who had been extremely kind to us and I'm yelling and screaming, had my face inches from his face and he's just staring as if he can't uh, see me, which of course he couldn't. At this point, Howard did not realize he was actually dead. He recognized his lifeless body, yet felt so alive. His only thought was about how critically he needed surgery. I heard people calling me in English, kind of nicely, you know. However, Howard, Howard, come here, come here. So I go over to the doorway of the room, and the hallway is gray. It's very unclear, like a terrible black and white TV picture. Men and women standing far away from the light of the doorway, and I said, I'm sick, I need to have surgery. I've been waiting all day for a doctor, and they said, we know all about you. Hurry, come with us. We can't wait any longer. Come, come, hurry. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, okay, <clears throat> they've come. They've come to take me to the doctor. That is great. I need surgery. The people, as I left the light of the room going into the hallway, encircled me and kind of stare, started leading me in the direction as we journeyed. At first, I thought I was in the hospital, but then as we walked in the grayness with these people around me, I became aware that this hospital was not this big, was not this big because we've gone miles and miles and miles now. As the grayness got darker and darker, they moved in closer and closer, but initially, they stayed far enough away from me so that I couldn't see them. All that I could see was V-neck shirts with short sleeves, you know, unadorned slacks. They looked exactly like hospital staff. Now as I asked them questions like, where are we going? How much further? Things like that. They started to become more rude and say things to me like, shut up, don't ask questions. You'll find out. You don't need to know. Keep moving, keep moving, move it. I'm getting pretty intimidated that becomes fear, that becomes terror, and now this is over a journey of miles and miles and miles, and eventually it's so dark, I'm aware I can't see anything anymore. It's pitch black. And I figure, I'm done, you know, I've had it. And so I said, I'm not going any further. And they said, oh yes you are, you've got further to go. And I said, I'm not going, so they started to to tug at me and push at me. I played football and wrestled in high school, so I knew how to play the game. So I'm trying to fend them off by punching and slamming them, and they're pulling and tugging at me. There's a lot of them. Judging by the voices and the touching, dozens, hundreds, maybe more than that. And what they were doing was just playing with me and toying with me. At first it was pushing, kicking, pulling, hitting, and then that became biting and tearing with their fingernails and hands. 
and they were taking pieces of me, and there was a lot of laughter, a lot of very foul language, and then they became more invasive. Howard had to pause in the interview just to fight back the traumatic memories which he later told me he had spent years trying to forget. I don't ever go further with this because it was so demeaning. I mean, I don't talk about it. There has never been a horror movie or a book that can begin to describe their cruelty because their cruelty was pure, sadistic. They were so empty, so without compassion or feeling for me that it was just amusement for me to scream and yell and fight back. And the less that I had the strength and the ability to fight back, the less interested they were in me. Eventually, I was eviscerated. I definitely lost, well, this gets gruesome. I'll, I'll skip this. And in that place, I heard a voice which I identified as my voice except that it did not come out of my throat. It's strange, but I feel like it came out of my chest. The voice said, pray to God. And I thought, I don't believe in God. I don't pray. The voice said, pray to God. And I thought, I don't even know how to pray. I couldn't pray if I wanted to pray. The voice said, pray to God. And I thought, when I was a boy and had gone to Sunday school, we'd been taught prayers. What were those prayers? Howard struggled to remember any prayers from childhood, anything with God's name in it. So he pieced together all he could recall into a ragtag prayer of desperation, shouting out, Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, and thou art with me. For purple mountains, majesty, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. One nation under God, and God bless America. (laughs) To my amazement, the cruel, merciless beings tearing the life out of me were incited to rage by my ragged prayer. It was if I were throwing boiling oil on them they screamed at me there's no god nobody can hear you now we are really going to hurt you they spoke in the most obscene language worse than any blasphemy said on earth but at the same time they were backing away now this made me want to pray more because for the first time i was able to hit back at them The prayers were clobbering them, and I also noticed that the more I muttered and tried to articulate anything that had God in it, like glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth goes marching on, they would retreat further and further away. Once the beings retreated, Howard lay on the ground in despair, contemplating his situation. He felt completely alone, nearly destroyed, yet painfully alive and intensely aware in his terrifying, horrible place. So now I have eternity, time without measure to think about my situation. Since I had no religious or theological understanding, 
I had to put it in the only way that I could think of, in which was septic systems, because I had lived a garbage life. I had gone down the toilet, down the septic system, and I realized this is the horrible part, that the people that had met me were my kindred spirits. Now, I do not know if I knew any of those people in this world prior prior to the experience, but they were my brothers and sisters in spirit. They denied God. They lived for themselves, and their lives were about manipulation and control of other people. That's what drove them. That's what motivated them. That's what they really live for. My life was devoted to building a monument to my ego, my family, my sculptures, my painting. All of those things were gone now, and what did they matter? I wasn't far from becoming like one of my own tormentors for all eternity. As Howard lay alone in the dark, feeling himself slipping away into hopelessness, a few words from a song he hadn't heard since childhood came to his head. He could remember but three words. Jesus loves me. And the tune, yet it tapped deep into a longing and ignited a tiny spark of hope. And now, all of a sudden, when it was all I had, I had nothing else. I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel of what might be possible, and I thought, what would Jesus care about me even if he is real why would he care he must hate me i'm so sorry i thought enough of this i'm done i don't have anything else i wanted it to be true that jesus loved me i yelled into the darkness jesus save me I have never met anything more strongly in my life. And when I said that, I saw a light, a tiny little speck of light, and it very rapidly got bright and came over me. And I saw out of the light hands and arms emerge out of this impossibly beautiful light so intense it's way brighter than the sun and these hands and arms came out and they reached and they touched me and when they touched me in that light I could see me and all and all the gore and I was roadkill all that gore all that gore began to just dissolve and I became whole. And much more significantly to me than the physical healing was that I was experiencing a love that is beyond, far beyond words. I have never been able to articulate it, but I can say that if I took all my experience of love in my entire life and condensed it into one moment, it still wouldn't begin to measure up to the intensity of this love that I was feeling. And that love is the foundation of my life from that moment on. Those arms went on me and healed me. They went behind my back and he picked me up 
as if it was no effort on his part. He just gently picked me up and held me up against him, real tight, up against his chest. So there I am with my arms around him, his arms around me, and I am bawling like a baby. I am slobbering and snorting and drooling with my head buried in his chest. And he starts to rub my back like a mom or dad with a child. And I knew, I don't know how I knew, but I knew that he loved me very much just the way I was. Jesus does love me. I called out to Jesus, and he came to rescue me. I cried and cried. Joy upon joy billowed through me. He carried me upward, just straight upward. I wanted to see where we were headed, and I realized <clears throat> that we're moving really, really rapidly because there's all kind of light, beings of light moving past us, and I am seeing only by his light, by his glory, and I can see that we're moving away. Everything was going to be going at a great rate of speed, and off in the distance is this tremendous center of light, a world of light beyond ability to perceive, bigger than galaxies. And as I looked towards the tremendous center of light, I knew That's God's house. That's heaven. <clears throat> so moving to the next chapter of the book, he picks up again with Howard. Howard Storm had been rescued from the horrors of the outer darkness, and now he found himself with Jesus, paused in space looking toward what he knew to be God's city. Jesus called in a melodic tone, and seven lights shot across the vast distance from the city of light to join them. Howard recognized them as angels or saints more brilliant and beautiful than he could imagine. Trumped only by Jesus himself, Jesus asked him if he wished to view his life. Unsure of what to expect, Howard agreed. Here's how he described the life review to me. Somebody have a Kleenex, Sandy. Help me. Thank you. I'll take two. <laughs> there are these angels in a semicircle around us, he's describing his experience. I'm being held. I'm now facing them with Jesus' arms still around me, holding me. Hanging in space outside of heaven. Spider. <laughs> Got him. I'm not going to use those
They gave me a life review. Jesus wanted them to play out in chronological order the scenes of my life. Mine was not as some people describe, panoramic or instantaneous. Mine was chronological from when I was born up to the present, moment by moment, life by life, in detail, including knowing, experiencing the feelings of the people that I was interacting with. The entire emphasis was on my interaction with other people, of course, initially starting out with my mother and father, my sisters, school, and friends. The review of his life was not what Howard expected. It seemed to be presented not from his own memory, but from the perspective of a third party. Together, he and the angels watched scenes from his life unfold, many of which he had forgotten. He was shown not only the events themselves, but also their effects on other people's lives and the thoughts and feelings of the people with whom he had interacted. Details Howard had not known about at the time of the events, the events had taken place. I learned in my life review regarding the relationship with my father that I had participated in the breakdown of that relationship as much as he did. He was not a good father to me, and I, I resented it, and I was angry at him, so I did everything I could subconsciously and sometimes consciously to be as rebellious and as cold-hearted towards him as possible, which only aggravated him more and made him more of a hostile father. So the things that I had seen in my life where I was the victim and everybody else was the bad guy, I came to find out was a two-way street. We were both playing this game as a son to my mother, as a son to my mother and father, I had failed them. My father and I had my relationship, had no relationship, and my poor mother, because of my dad and me not speaking to each other, we couldn't have much of a relationship. I hardly ever saw her. I had a very poor relationship with my sisters. I had not been a good husband to my wife. The whole emphasis was on people and not things. As my life progressed, my adolescence into adulthood, I saw myself turning completely away from God, church, all that, and becoming a person who decided that life was all about being the biggest, baddest bear in the woods. As a matter of fact, there were some instances where I had won promotions, honors, awards, and they skipped them. I said to Jesus, you're skipping the most important thing in my life. This is what I live for, to get this award. Kentucky Artist of the Year. Big banquet in my honor and a big cash prize and everything. And he said, that's, and he said, that's not what we're here for to see. <clears throat> that's not important. I want you to see, what I want you to see is how you treated the students. Howard could barely watch some of the scenes from his life as they were played by the angel, replayed by the angels. He was particularly distressed by how he had treated the children when he neglected them to focus on his own career and accomplishments rather than on their need to feel loved by him. And now I began to experience Jesus and the angels' literal pain, emotional pain, 
with watching the sins in my life. I had not been the father to my kids that I should have been, and I knew I hadn't because I was busy. I was trying to be somebody. Their football games and band concerts and choral concerts and theater performance, they could all wait because I was busy being important. I was doing stuff, making myself into somebody. The emotional abandonment of my children was devastating to review. Watching his life review, Howard understood how his self-centered nature had dominated his entire life, causing him to put his own desires before the needs of the people around him. At one point, Howard was so ashamed by how much his cruel and selfish behavior grieved Jesus and the heavenly beings, he begged them to stop the review. Yet, he persisted and continued to watch for one reason. In spite of the fact that they were disappointed in the way he had lived his life, Jesus and the angels continued to communicate only unconditional love for him. No matter what we watch me do in life, they communicated their deep love for me, even as they expressed their disapproval of things I did. To use vulgar words is only poor taste. To use the name of God in crude or empty ways is an insult to our Creator. I was terrified at how it hurt my heavenly company when we witness me blaspheming God and Christ Jesus. Here is the nicest, kindest, most loving being I've ever met who I realized is my Lord, my Savior, even my Creator, holding me and supporting me, trying to give me more understanding of my life. And Jesus is, the very, <clears throat> is a very feeling man. God is a very feeling creator, and they feel, <clears throat> and they feel about us. The reason why he didn't love what I did was because it distracted from who I was meant to be. Like when you see someone that only is not <clears throat> that is not only that not only is not living up to their potential, but actually denying their potential. I was made for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's what I was missing. The angels showed me that what we do not earn, that we do not earn our love of God by the things we do. God's love is given without cost or strings attached. We live lovingly because God loves us so much. Thank God there is a way to change our lives and be forgiven our mistakes. Jesus is God's redemptive act for a fallen world. If a person is not ruled by the love of God, he or she is ruled by hatred of God. The greatest hatred of God is to be indifferent to God. For Howard, everything became crystal clear after his experience. He is simply grateful that he has been given another chance to live his life be forgiven for his mistakes and love the God who, <clears throat> who dearly loves him.
the subject of what did you do with your life that matters to me came up in so many people's experience. The author refers to D.L. Moody who wrote his own book, accumulated documentation about people that had these experience. The wording is obviously unique to each experience, but it generally involves a question related to whether or not the person is prepared or ready to die and what that person has done with the life he or she has been given. The main emphasis is to lead the near-death experiencers to think about their lives. Jesus told us the time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. The message is clear. Live now for what really matters. Some of these testimonies are from pastors with successful ministries. And the Lord lovingly pulls them in to the same scenario and asks them, what have you really done for me? So again, it's not just about the activity or the reputation or building something. It's always about, did you care about the people that you had to do with. The world tells us money matters, power matters, prestige matters, and we drive ourselves crazy trying to improve, trying to prove to, to one another that we're successful enough, important enough, powerful enough. Yet in the end, it's relationship that truly matters. How ironic that in trying to prove we are worthy of love through accomplishments, we could miss accepting God's love and sharing it with those around us. And in the end, that matters most for true success. Everybody wants to change the world. Nobody wants to love their neighbor. Yet all God needs us to do to change the world is to love God so we can love our neighbor as much as ourselves. We may accomplish big things in the world's eyes, build huge corporations, lead sweeping political change, or even lead large nonprofits or churches in God's name. And that can all be good, but if we fail to love our families, our neighbors, our coworkers, and those in need, when God puts in our path, we have failed in the primary task God's given us. Jesus told us that in the final day, God will say, when you failed to love, to serve, to clothe, to feed, to care for the least, the forgotten, the unimportant, you failed to do it to me. <coughs> when you did love, serve, clothe, feed, care for the least important, you did it to me. Now come, receive your reward. At Jeffrey Long's notes, NDEs <clears throat> found that 
some of the most seemingly insignificant actions, a small kindness, for instance, turned out to be important or meaningful in their own or another person's life. Likewise, people saw in their life review they had overvalued unimportant, insignificant things. Jesus, it goes on, say that. And I referred to this pastor that had this. And in the end of his experience with the Lord, I was to become the employer, the neighbor, the friend that I was to intended to be. And he changed his perspective about everything that he was doing. There will be a life review for all of us, whether we're unbelievers or whether believers. And in that moment, however it actually looks for each of us, when we're face to face with Jesus, we will be loved through it. That's something we don't understand. In our culture, when you're under the gun and you're accused and you're in the courtroom, there's, there's no love there or comfort there. Just a dreaded pronouncement. Whatever we face in the presence of Jesus, he and whoever, this ain't like, I'm just fascinated, I'm intrigued with this level of love they all talk about. They all talk about this. They, they never want to leave it. They never want to be away from his side. It's that overwhelming. And even when they're looking at the horrible things of their life, there's a whole new reason for all of it. And if there are things that they've done, he, he, clean, he washes it all away with this, his love. And um, it also shows the reality of this life after death. And we have the scriptures for it. But to read the experiences, that's the testimony of the reality of it. It really does make a difference. We have to hear the stories. We have to hear the testimony. Whether we're seeking healing or we're seeking uh, financial blessings, or whatever we're seeking, it's the testimonies that we mix with the word and the promises and the scriptures. And it, it brings it to life. So we need this. I'm, I'm so encouraged by this and so blessed. And, and touched. It, it just causes me to really see this level of the love that Jesus has for us. This story is not the only story. There's many, 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 many to experience, to cry out even in utter darkness. I mean, what a close call. And in that realm that we don't have a lot of great theology for, like, it's weird, but I really, I really am blessed by this. I would never argue with anybody about what's right or wrong about it, but it's, it rings true for me. And it, 
it fits scripture and it, there are so many verses and so many things and you hear these stories and you go, oh, oh, that's their experience of this verse. And um, it just made things come alive. As unpleasant as it is, we need to live with the reality of eternal damnation. And that this book is also so clear. It's not, it's not God that sends anybody there. It's people that don't want anything to do with him and choosing that. And you watch people, you encounter people that become embittered about something. And if they rehearse that and they go down that road, in a matter of time, it becomes who they are. And it just comes out of their pores, doesn't it? We've all met them. You're like, you don't usually like to be around those people unless you're one of them. To be bitter, to be a victim, to be resentful, to be un, you know, unbelieving in God. And you get to this place where there's, there's nothing left in you. But that's, it's not God's, it's not God's, it's not his fault. It's, 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 uh, it's the person's. And yet even that person he loves, even that person, there's no one he doesn't love. In heaven, in these different experiences, they would, when their thoughts were about themselves, they could perceive how much Jesus loved them. When their thoughts moved to another person, they could perceive how much Jesus loved them. I'm like, oh yeah. I want to be that person right now on this side of eternity that when I see myself, I can perceive that God loves me just the way I am. He made me, created me with all my intricacies and all my peculiarities and my personality. He loves me. And then if I look at anybody else, that he has the same love for them with their peculiarities. It's easy to love people that are easy to love. It's hard to love people that are abrasive, that have stepped on your toes, that have bothered you, that have done something, that have stolen from That's That's hard. But he does love them just as much. I, I hope that you walk away with this, that you reevaluate any unforgiveness you hold towards yourself, any destructive habits you have, self-hatred, it's still alive. This casting to the wind, how you treat your body, what you do, how you, like, that all has to go. That's all illegal for us as believers. We know better. It, it doesn't fit in a reality of, of knowing the love of God. And and when we're there, it's like, boy, we just need to go. Um, this isn't. This isn't where I should be. I need to find my way out of this. This has got to stop now. And then to have this, to develop the same love, to choose to love, and get past the parts that are unlovable about others, about yourself, and about others. It's both ways. It's both things at the same time. At the same time, you probably have a harder time loving other people if you don't love yourself, which seems so self-centered, but you've got to come to this acceptance 
And when you see yourself in his eyes, I pray that you do. I enable you to, to love even people that are horrible people. That's, that's the call. And how we relate to people. Aren't we so consumed with building stuff and having stuff and going there? You know, and, and, and you accomplish something and you're like, oh, that's good. And then to realize you'll get to heaven and they don't even mention it. Hey, I've got a Heisman trophy. Uh, sorry, that doesn't count here. You can run fast and catch balls. Like, okay. Did you love your wife? How did you treat your children? How'd you keep, how did you treat your father, your mother, how, who you're related to? You want to win the world? Love your neighbor. Wow, how convicting, isn't it? We dream about going other grand places like, Go cross the street. Just don't go beyond what you can do. Just care. Just love. Don't have to rest. You don't have to save people in that sense. Just love. Don't withhold yourself. I've been making these changes in my, right now. I, I've identified where I'm holding back, and I'm like, I've got to stop doing that. And those are the things that matter. Jesus was like, that's good, Rick. Do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? His, his correction to, to Cain when he was about to really get in trouble with Cain and Abel. And the Lord visits him. He sees that he's downcast. He's upset. He's depressed. His face has fallen off of, you know, he's like not happy anymore. You can tell when someone's countenance has fallen. It's when you walk up to someone, hey, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what's the matter? Nothing. Like, right you look like you're going to eat somebody, like you, you're not okay. And the Lord's instruction was, listen, do well, do the right thing at this moment in your life, and your countenance will be lifted up again. And we're like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not saying I'm sorry. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to do something that's hard to do. Just if you, but if you do well, isn't it wonderful when your countenance is up? You're like, you're happy, you're full of life and love. Like, I love that feeling. I love that place when you're good. And the Lord loves that too. He wants us to walk that way. Let's pray. Don't want to belabor this. Father, in Jesus' name, I just thank you for these testimonies. I thank you for this book. I thank you for your book. And I thank you for testimonies that make your book, your word, so much real for us. We need the testimony. We thank you for that. I want to just ask in Jesus' name, you call us to a higher place that we'll choose to love, that we'll do the right things, that we'll get our priorities straightened out. I know you want to bless us and let us enjoy good things, but we've got to get, we've got to get our stuff in order. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless all of you. Remember, Christmas Eve is on Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock. We're just doing an hour service. And then Christmas, you have Christmas off. Spend time with your families. Amen. Okay. Love somebody this week, huh?
for he restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness, your mercy, and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. From this single passage alone, and there are hundreds of them throughout God's word, we can find everything we possibly need to be overcomers, to walk victoriously in the kingdom of God, to make it through whatever trial or tribulation we are currently walking through. It said, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He has made every provision for me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He brings me prosperity. He restoreth my soul. I love how Kim began with her restorations, <laughs> with her family. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So comfort and from freedom from fear is at God's table. He leads me beside still water. Peace is at God's table. His goodness, his mercy, his love follows me all the days of my life. Not all of the um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about this, but John does it. He goes on extensively about the love of God. And I won't go there right now, but I'll just go to this one scripture where it says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my words, and my Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. What could we ever ask for more than that? But unfortunately at the table, at the Passover meal, there is also a betrayer at the table. And there's a betrayer among us in the world. And I know that throughout my walk, I've been taught that I need to stand and fight that betrayer. I need to be strong, I need to be courageous. That's my go-to scripture. For I, the Lord, am with you. So I take up my sword and I try to fight, but sometimes I feel so defeated. But this week, the Lord has been revealing to me a different way to battle and to fight. <clears throat> After the Last Supper, the, the Passover, Jesus had another conversation with his disciples that wasn't very pleasing, and it went something like this. One of you is going to betray me, and the rest of you will deny even knowing me. I'm going to skip down a bit. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, you will strengthen your brothers. And those are some words to ponder over. But Simon replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison, to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you would deny me three times that you know me. 
This may be hard to swallow, <laughs> but those are his words. But then Jesus said another scripture. He said, he talked to them. Remember when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and they fell asleep and he said, you couldn't even stay awake with me during this time. And then he goes on to talk to him. He says, when I sent you without a purse, a bag or sandals, did you lack anything? And they answered, nothing. He said to them, but now you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, it was written about me. It is reaching fulfillment. And the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he said. And then we know that Jesus comes to the time when he was arrested. When Jesus was speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas was leading them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going on, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. In Matthew 26, it says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draws the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would be fulfilled the scripture that says what happened this way? So today, as you come to the Lord's table, remember the words he left for us in Psalm 23, that he has prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemy. And consider if he's asking you to lay down your sword for a while and in its place, pick up something from his table. For provision is waiting here for you. Restoration is here. Comfort is here. Peace, goodness. Take his mercy home today and let him wrap his love around you. For no matter where you are at and know what circumstance you're in, he is with you. Then he sent some servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my table and everything is ready. Come to my banquet.